Okay, folks, we're rolling. It's uh, great to be with you again this morning. Thank you for joining me. And uh, as always, if you have any questions or any input along the way, while we have everyone muted, you can send those to me through uh, the chat window and we will see if we can't uh, get to you that way and speak to you there. Uh, but uh, I want to begin by letting you know that my wife and I have had a long time ongoing debate and it centers around the notion of what is good and what is good for now. We had one of these discussions just this week. Uh, what we're going to, uh, what we're discovering as uh, as we're here at home, a lot of the times, this is uh, trying to follow these stay-at-home directives. When you start to notice all the things around your house that uh, you've always wanted to do but haven't had the opportunity to do, and the thought goes, well, we're trapped here by and large, so let's tackle a few of these projects. And so, what you should also know about Tracy and me is that we're big do-it-yourself people. Uh, first of all, I enjoy home improvement projects. And second, uh, if you can do it well, you can save a bunch of money in the process. So as long as we've been married, our first impulse is to ask, can we do this project ourselves? Right now, if you look around the house, you will see the evidence of this. I wish I could probably, I probably could turn the camera around. You see paint swatches across the wall where Tracy is trying to evaluate the different colors uh, that we can paint here. We have a window that's half under construction over here. We're doing all kinds of things right now just because here we are in the midst of uh, living in this area. Let's let's do these, these projects one at a time. However, uh, one of the projects that we're thinking about right now is removing the carpet from actually this room right here and putting in hardwoods. And uh, that's what we're thinking about now. However, though it seems somewhat counterintuitive, when we take up the rug, put down hardwood, we would still then like to put a rug down over that hardwood, an area rug. So yes, we're gonna pull up the rug, put down hardwood, and put a rug on top of it. We're odd beings, us humans. So knowing that we'll require an area rug, Tracy tells me that she'll need an area rug budget as we're trying to figure out uh, how much we're gonna spend here. So once we have the floor done, we're gonna wanna put an area rug down now. My wife has always been very particular about decorating. She will look and look and look until she finds the exact right thing. And you see, uh, I know this. I know it may take some time to find a rug once the floors are done. So my solution, easy. We can just get a, a cheap placeholder rug to put down to protect the floors until we find the, the exact one that you want. That suggestion always draws a sharp veto from Tracy. You see, I'm thinking we can just go to the mall parking lot and they have a tent set up there usually and we can buy a nice rug for cheap. One that might even have a tiger on it or something. <laughs> She's moaning in the background over here. It will only set us back about 50 to $75 and we can keep that until we find the rug that we really want. Well, Tracy's response is no, that's 50 to $75 we can uh, use on the rug that we really want. So no temporary rugs, this is her, uh, her veto. And uh, so we're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, if we're either gonna do this, she says we're either gonna do this or we're not gonna do this, there's no, there's no in between. So this is cha Tracy's challenge to me. Uh, either we're committed to doing something and doing it right 100% or we're just not gonna do it. Uh, we're not gonna go through all the work of putting in hardwood floors only to cover it up with a rug that has a tiger on it, okay? Tigers are my favorite animals, by the way. I love, uh, especially the white tiger, but again, and I know, I know you're gonna tell me and direct me toward the Tiger King and all that, which, you know, that's another conversation for another day. But again, this is Tracy's retort to me. Either we're doing this or we're not. Either we're all in or we're all out. No in-between business, no in-between, okay? Fair enough. You see, 
if you're going to do something right, that's really the mindset you need to take. Anything you purpose in your heart to do, if you're not all in, if you're not, not, if you're not all in, you're not really in. It might be better not to get involved at all if you're not all in. If I'm going to swim from, from Florida to Cuba, but I'm only going to use one arm, I'm going to sink, okay? I'm probably going to sink anyway. But it would be better for me not to take an attempt at all if I'm only going to do it halfway in that respect, okay? If I'm going to get married, if, I, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm not going to reserve all my heart's affection for my wife, uh, if I'm going to divide it amongst more than one person, I'd be better off not getting married at all, okay? All or nothing, nothing halfway. This is a, a theme of the next character that we're going to look at uh, in our series, which we've entitled The Men and Women of the Old Testament. And in this series, we're listening for the whispers of Christ in the Old Testament, the foreshadowing made through the people and accounts in the Old Testament that tell us something of what Christ would do in the New Testament. And for my money, if we're going to talk about the people in the Old Testament, we can't talk about those people without talking about the prophet Elijah. All right. And uh, let me bring you up to speed from where we are uh, from an historical uh, standpoint. Before I do, let me check the, uh, <laughs> you are wrong. I love the, love the chats uh, that we get here on the, uh, on the window here. Let me bring uh, you up to speed from a historical perspective of where we are by the time we get to about Elijah in uh, 1 Kings 17. Uh, we're now entering into the period of Israel's history uh, that's often been marked by a clear dividing line. Okay, often when people refer to the Old Testament, they break it out into two parts. It's commonly referred to the law and the prophets. Okay, and when we begin talking about the, that prophetical period in the Old Testament, we mark the beginning of that period by pointing to the prophet Elijah. All right, up until the prophet, uh, excuse me, up until the time of Elijah, yes, there were those who uttered prophecies. For instance, Moses. Moses spoke prophetically at times, but it was Elijah who is often considered to be the first in the line of prophets uh, of uh, often what we call the, the, the prophetical period of the Old Testament. We talked a little bit about this uh, last week. Um, this is where we are in the history of God's people. This is the period after the Israelites had already settled in the land of Canaan, the promised land, after the period of Judges and, and King David. Uh, and then after King David, of course, uh, was the reign of his son Solomon. After the reign of his son was uh, um, uh, King Rehoboam. And it was during his reign where the kingdom divided. Remember, I showed you that map last week where the kingdom divided north and south, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And in typical fashion, as they always did throughout the entire Old Testament, the people of the Lord would continually wander. They kept wandering. They kept looking over at their neighbors and see what their worship, worship practices were. And, and, uh, and they, hey, you know what? That looks pretty good. Maybe we should do that too. Maybe we should get that involved with what we're doing here. Now, here's the thing about the prophet. Okay. In the Old Testament, the prophets were people who spoke on behalf of the Lord. All right. This is why I say that Moses spoke prophetically at times. He spoke on behalf of, of uh, the Lord to his people. Now, what it means when the prophet spoke, and you've heard me talk about this before, when the prophet said, thus saith the Lord, the prophet isn't just giving his, his opinion here. This is a person who is called by God and given the words of God to relay to his people. All right. It was incumbent upon the prophet to make his calling known so the people would know that this was the very mouthpiece of God they're hearing from. And I've heard it said that prophets, uh, uh, my old friend R.C. Sproul, uh, used to say that prophets acted like attorneys on behalf of God. And uh, the prophets were like attorneys because the people of God continually broke the, the covenant. They broke their contract with God and violated the terms of, of that covenant. They defied God's treaty. So God would send, in effect, his attorney 
to go bring suit against the party who broke the covenant, the people of God. The prophet would essentially deliver the subpoena and bring the charges against the people of Israel for breaking the covenant that they had with God. And so what would the prophet do? It was his job to remind them of their roots, essentially. It was his job to remind the people who they belong to. He shall be your God and you shall be their people. So snap out of it, okay? And so here's where we are on this point in history. It's been 150 years since uh, the, the time of David, since the reign of, of, uh, of David. And God's people were doing the very things they'd been told not to do ever since they entered in the promised land, okay? So when the Israelites entered the promised land, God called the Israelites uh, to, to destroy everything, destroy everything as they entered into the land of Canaan, destroy it all so as to be a people set apart, uh, unaffected by the pagan practices of the people whose land they were about to occupy. And time and time again, they, they failed to uh, follow this instruction. They were continually seduced by the, the pagan religions and, and customs around them. Now, uh, Phoenicia, Phoenicia was a, a country that bordered Israel at the time. And Phoenicia was a highly advanced civilization, but also a highly pagan civilization, okay? That's Phoenicia. Uh, the king at the time, right now, of, uh, of, 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 um, of God's people was a guy by the name of Ahab, okay? Ahab became involved with a woman from Phoenicia named Jezebel, and he brought her into, uh, into the land. Basically, she tells Ahab, you know, I'll, I'll come. I'll come to be your, your, in effect, your queen, okay? I'll be your queen, Ahab, but I'm, I'm going to bring my customs, my practices, my religion, priest, the whole nine yards. I'm going to bring it all with me. And of course, he agrees. And she comes to town with her entourage of priests. And once again, paganism has infiltrated uh, the land. But it was worse than that. It wasn't just infiltration. It was what we would call pluralism. They were trying to blend the religion of the one true God and the worship of the Baals, okay? The, the false gods, specifically uh, their rain god, which was important to, to this account that we're, we're looking at. Supposedly, this is the pagan god that controls the rain. He says that uh, when, he, when he, he says, and this God apparently says in, uh, when, the, when the rain comes and goes. So, so here we are, the people of God. They're not all in. They're half in. They're, they're buying a tiger rug for the family room, right? So this is where Elijah enters the picture. And with him comes a drought. See that? It, it's almost like God sent Elijah with a direct challenge to the false, false God. It's like he tells him, oh, uh, okay. Oh, really? We're, you, um, we'll, we'll see who the, the Lord of the rain is. Yeah, here, here's a three-year three drought. Let's see your God make it rain now, okay? A drought hits, hits the land, no rain, no dew, nothing. After that period, the Lord directs Elijah, his prophet, to go and meet Ahab. And Elijah shows up and tells him, meet me up on Mount uh, Carmel, uh, not Caramel, Mount Carmel. Bring your people and all your priests, and we'll see who the, the true God is. It's a, it's a fight of the ages, okay? So that brings, us up, uh, uh, that brings us up to speed. So if you want to turn your uh, Bibles to 1 Kings 18, uh, 20, or follow along with me here on my, my computer here, we'll read this account and see what happens as Elijah confronts Ahab and his band of prophets, okay? This is 1 Kings 18, and we're going to start with verse uh, 20 through 24, and it says this, and make sure I'm on the right screen again. Here we go, verse 20. 
So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the, uh, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So there's the scene. You have Ahab and his 450 prophets, air quotes, against Elijah all by himself. Elijah instructs him to prepare a sacrifice and he would do the same. They'll each call upon the name of their God and whoever answers by fire, that's the one true God. Now remember, since these prophets and follow, followers of Baal believe that Baal controlled thunder, lightning, and, and storms in the whole nine yards, all right, Elijah's challenge to them is, is striking right at the core of this false God's alleged power. A giant ball of thunder and lightning should be no problem for this so-called God, okay? So continuing, verses uh, 25 to 27 says this. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and, uh, and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud. For he is a God, either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now, it's getting downright comical here. Uh, Elijah tells them to prepare a sacrifice, but don't put fire to it. Leave that to your God. He then tells them or, or gives them the best part of the day, morning until noon, uh, and they start calling for Baal. There's no answer to it. So as my translation puts it, they limped around the altar. Some translations uh, or versions might translate that as dance or leap and whatever you have in your version. This is a, a ritualistic performance to draw out this God from wherever he's hiding. And as they're dancing around, Elijah starts mocking them. Hey, call him louder. Maybe he's running errands or maybe he's going to the bathroom, it says here. Maybe he's asleep. Dance harder. Perform more. Okay. Perform more. Continuing verses uh, 28 and 29. Oh, I love this account. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now it moves from comical to horrifying. They keep it up from noon and into the evening. Oblation was the evening sacrifice. And uh, now notice their behavior. They start with dancing and move to cutting themselves. The blood gushed down upon them, it says. Remember that. That's going to be important later. Still no answer. No one is paying attention, okay? Not, their, not any of their uh, false god here. So it's Elijah's turn now. After waiting all day, 
uh, for, for their God to show up. He gathers them around and says this, verses 30 to 35. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Uh, the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, what you have to realize what's going on here is that Elijah repaired an altar. Uh, it was there before, um, uh, there before there was a centralized place of worship. Uh, there were altars built unto the Lord throughout the land. And Ahab and, Je and Jezebel presumably destroyed this particular altar uh, at Mount Carmel as they started erecting altars of these false gods. So before Elijah prepares a new altar, he, uh, he or, yeah, before he prepares a new altar, he repairs the old one. And, and then he takes the 12 stones and builds a new one. As he finishes, he tells the people to douse it with water, not once, not twice, but three times. So that the trench where it was built upon was filled with water. He's, he's in effect deliberately trying to put himself at a disadvantage here. He then begins to pray to the Lord, verses uh, 36 to 39. And it reads this, verses 36 to 39. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you, you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water uh, that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now notice something here. Notice that there's no, there's no dancing. There's no cutting. Nothing frantic or elaborate. Just simple, a direct to the point prayer. Uh, then all at once, the fire of the Lord consumes not only the burnt offering, but, but the wood and also the stones. I've never seen a stone on fire and, and the dust as well as the water that was in the trench. The water was on fire. So let's be clear here. This isn't just an act of nature or a natural phenomenon. Lightning doesn't consume stone. At least I don't think it does, right? The Lord puts on a display for everyone present. It leaves no room for doubt. That's the point, okay? This has to be a work from the, the Lord God himself. It was such a special display that it causes the unbelieving people, the wayward people, the ones who had been limping between two gods to fall to their faces and confess that Yahweh is the one true God. Now, what a great story. What a great story. I love, I love this, this account, but let, let me be honest with you. Let's just be honest with one another here. Do you have friends or, or family members uh, that think you're nuts? for believing in God. Have you, ever, have you ever seen anyone on social media or wherever maybe tell you to your face, I don't believe in religious fairy tales. I believe in science, right? Doesn't that just get under your skin? I, I can't tell you how much that gets under my skin. 
for many reasons, all right? And I wish that once in a while, don't you just wish with me that, that uh, once in a while God would put on a scene like this? Oh, don't believe in God? Let me call upon him so he can rain down fire and show you. Sometimes I wish God would just defend himself once in a while, you know? Show them you're real, God. Show them you're real. But stories like this don't really seem to, to happen today, right? Uh, it doesn't seem like it. We, we don't encounter scenes like this in our place of work or in our neighborhoods. You don't see people raising altars to false gods and dancing around the altar of that false god, asking for, for him or her to show up and answer the, to the point that people start cutting themselves with swords and knives, do we? We don't see that. Is that something we typically see on a daily basis? Yes, we do. This, this does happen. Having said that, I'll, I'll bet the people you have in mind right now may not be the same people that I have in mind. The people I have in mind look a lot like me. They behave a lot like me. Do you remember what we said when we, we, we began? Um, we said uh, that, hold on, I'm going to change one setting here. When we began, we said, what was the function of the prophet? We asked what the function of the prophet was, to be the mouthpiece of God, to be the very mouthpiece of God, the one who would deliver the word of the Lord to whom? Who was the prophet delivering the word of the Lord to? Most often, it was a word delivered to the people of God. This is what Elijah's main function is here, to tell the people of God, who are you going to serve today? Either you're all in or you're all out. Don't go limping between God and the other false gods. This was a message to the wayward people of God. You see, this wasn't just a, a call uh, uh, to repentance or, or a call for them to turn their back to the one true God. Look what, look what Elijah specifically asked them in verse 21. He says this, remember? How long? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Okay? This is what I was talking about when we started out. It was about going all in. No fence riding here. This is a concept that doesn't just apply to home improvement and area rugs. This is, this is what God's people have, have a natural inclination to do for as long as we've lived with the consequences of, of the fall. Our hearts are little idol factories, okay? We have a propensity to create and worship false gods. Now, now when we think of false gods, we might have an impression of, of what that looks like. We want it to look something like a golden calf, but nowadays it doesn't look anything like that. At least it doesn't for me. If you're actually constructing uh, golden calves, please talk to me afterwards, okay? But our false gods, believe it or not, sometimes look a lot like God, or at least in our own minds, right? Notice how they were behaving. I'll do this. If, if I call him louder, if I engage in this behavior, then he'll do what I'm asking him to do. If, if this is how we approach God, okay, who is actually calling the shots? Who is actually God? Who's actually in control there, okay? So for me and you, a false god or an idol isn't something that will construct out of gold and shape it to look like a calf or something. A false god is anything that we worship, anything that we devote ourselves to with an expectation of receiving something in return that ultimately can't be fulfilled by whatever we're worshiping. Okay? Think of all the things that we're, we're capable of pouring ourselves into. If I pour myself into my job with hopes that it brings me security, peace, and stability, if I'm devoting myself to a false God that, that ultimately can't provide me security, peace, and, and stability, that, that's what I'm doing there. 
if that's my, if my job becomes my false God and I'm devoting myself to it, ultimately it can't bring me security, peace, and stability. Think about all the people that struggle with addiction. They're pouring themselves into, into something that ultimately can't give them what they're looking for. It might give them a taste of what they're looking for, which is why they keep on chasing it and chasing it and chasing it. You, again, because they got a taste of something that, that ultimately can't provide them uh, what they're looking for. These are, these are false gods, okay? And remember, remember what we read here in verse 26. This is verse 26. It says this. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of, of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Okay. These are the marks of a false God. We solicit the thing, whatever it is, trying to draw a response out of it, trying to, to, to give us something that, that it can't provide. It doesn't answer. But look at this. Sometimes, sometimes it takes on another form. I've, I've shared with you before. Uh, but it's worth repeating to, to illustrate this very point. Just before I got married, I went through a period where, where nothing seemed to be working out for me. I, I was having trouble finding a job, uh, and here I was about to get married. And, and how in the world was I going to be the provider and leader of my family if I couldn't even find a decent job? And I remember being angry with the Lord, telling him, Lord, wh what else do you want from me? I've committed my life to you. I pray every day, all the time. I read my Bible to surround myself with your word. I fasted. I went to seminary. Lord, I went to seminary. Who does that, right? I go to church every single week and, and you're just leaving me here, God. I'm, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to find work so I can be the leader and provider for my family. And you're not answering me. Doesn't that feel a little familiar when you hold it up against the account that we just read? Look at my performance, Lord. Now reward me. If God responds to that, who is actually God? Who is controlling whom? If I do this, then you have to do that. Who's in control? In Baal worship, you switch roles and suddenly you become the wise one because you're the one that knows what you need. And you're the one who's good and, and he's the one who's on a journey or and you have to chase him down and capture his attention. He's the one who needs information. When God wasn't answering my prayers the way I wanted him to in, that, in my time frame that I wanted him to answer, I started performing for God in order to get what I needed from him. Look what I'm doing, God. Look what I'm doing. Now you have to respond to me. And guess what happened the next time? Uh, guess what happened next when, when, I, when I didn't get the answer I was looking for in the time frame I wanted? I started to beat myself up. I started to feel worthless because I couldn't find a job. I started cutting myself, not literally, but emotionally. I was feeling sorry for myself. Why? I would have never admitted at the time but I believe that somehow I could manipulate God into feeling sorry for me too. I've seen my kids do this hundreds of times. They act sad and rejected when they don't get their way so they can manipulate me into changing my mind, right? Here I was an adult doing the very same thing. See, where I was steering off course during, during those times of anxiety, my God wasn't the one true God. My God was, was finding work. My God was money. That was my God. That's where I was putting my faith. That's what I was counting on. That's what I was dancing for. Eventually, yes, the Lord was merciful to me and allowed me to find work in spite of my behavior, in spite of my behavior, okay? But certainly wasn't because of my behavior. Elijah's prayer was basically, God, answer my prayer 
for your sake, not for my own. It was almost a precursor to Christ's own prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Okay. I love this account and, and I love how it teaches us so much about ourselves and how we approach God. But here's the thing, and I, I want to be very careful here. I don't want you to leave this lesson here with the impression that, hey, you're worshiping wrong, you're praying wrong, you're talking to God wrong, and until you fix it, you're not going to get your, your, your life right. That's not what I'm trying to tell you at all. Okay, you see, for me, I didn't suddenly figure out what I was doing wrong and then I fixed it and then everything else turned out right from there. Honestly, I don't think I realized my missteps until years later. Okay. This account does call us to worship the one true God. Okay. This account does call us not to be halfway in, be all in. Okay. Now, how many of us think we can commit to that? How many of us think that, that we'll be able to leave here after hearing this and be all in, 100%, no holdbacks, totally devoted to the one true God? I wish I could say I am, but I promise you I'm going to fail. I promise you I still fail at this. Now, here's the thing. Here's the great payoff. If we read this account in the, in the Old Testament and we only read this account in the Old Testament, we'll walk away thinking, whew, I got a lot of work to do. I better get it right. That's what you'd think if you only read this account, okay? But the rest of the Bible tells us the full story. This story doesn't help us unless we see how it points to Jesus. It's just like all the other accounts that we, we, we've looked at, starting with Job and, and Esther and all the rest, okay? If we only look at this account, we're going to be left thinking, man, I'm, I'm wholly insufficient here. <laughs> I've, I've got a lot of work to do. How did God show us uh, in this account, that he was the one true God. How did he show up? What did he do? He came down by fire, and what did he consume? He consumed the sacrifice. God consumed the sacrifice. And that's the difference between true worship and Baal worship. When, when he came down by fire, did he consume all the people around the altar? No, he consumed the sacrifice. He consumed the burnt offering. Elijah did take care of the prophets, false prophets later, okay, as was the custom for false prophets. But the Lord consumed the sacrifice. And we have to remember that anytime we see reference to a burnt offering in the Old Testament, we have to remember what that offering, what that sacrifice points to. It points to Christ. We have to remember that anytime we see a burnt offering in the Old Testament or a sacrificial offering, that offering wasn't a means of removing sin. It was a means of pointing to the one who would ultimately remove our sin, who would ultimately serve as our sacrifice and the sacrifice that the Lord would consume, okay? Though we deserve to be consumed, the sacrifice was consumed instead. Jesus was consumed. And in the process our sin was laid on him, and his record was, was, was placed on us. He was perfectly righteous. He prayed perfectly. He worshiped perfectly. None of his prayers were, were misdirected to a false god. He never tried to manipulate God through his prayers. He was perfectly righteous. And when the sacrifice was consumed, and when our sin was placed upon him, he gave us that perfectly righteous record of his he placed it on us. You and I, we're going to be judged by his record, not ours, okay? Ultimately, you see what this is? This is an account of mercy. 
God's people were limping around between God and the false gods. God should have consumed his people, but instead he had mercy and consumed the sacrifice. Not much has changed. Not much has changed. God's people, like me, okay, still go limping between God and and whatever we try and put in God's place. We still do that, okay? But instead of consuming me, instead of consuming me, he consumes the sacrifice and gives me Christ's record in the process. Now, I want to end with with this, and then uh, we can go to questions if you have any, but I want to end with this that sort of perfectly summarizes uh, exactly the, the sentiment that we're talking about here. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's ultimately it. This is ultimately the story for us. That yes, though you and I go limping between gods, between God and, and a false God. Though ultimately we try and manipulate God with, with our prayers. Ultimately we go cutting ourselves to try and get God to do what we want. Uh, we're going to do this for the rest of our lives. That's what we're going to do. We're going to struggle like this for the rest of our lives. But God in his mercy, God in his mercy, for our sake, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He consumes the sacrifice. Let's, uh, let's stop there and see if there's any other uh, questions or comments you might have um, in, in light of, of that. Uh, and hopefully we, we don't get interrupted here again. Uh, if there are no other comments, uh, or go ahead and put them through the chat window now. Um, and if not, okay. Hey folks, uh, I give you about now 18 minutes um, to, to log on to, to the, the service, which is available now, but uh, you know, I would still encourage us, let's all try and get together at 10 o'clock for, for worship. And uh, you're in for a real treat uh, in two respects. First of all, uh, Micah Edmondson is going to be preaching today. That's going to be exciting, and you're going to uh, not want to miss that. But also, uh, the choir has put together a special um, uh, presentation for worship. Uh, again, uh, I think about the choir. My wife is in the choir, and I know this is a difficult time uh, for, for them whose ministry surrounds getting together to worship and singing united. And how difficult is that right now? It's impossible, it seems like. But they've put in the work, and they've prepared a special treat for you, and I, and I hope you'll, uh, you'll enjoy that and be ministered by it. I've had a sneak peek of it, and uh, I've blown away by it. So I hope you'll uh, log on for that. Okay? Uh, thank you all for joining me today. And uh, as always, thanks for zooming in. We'll talk to you next time.